0: did this occur in a business format or business continuity planning that like, actually would have been acceptable to us? And <laughs> if not, do we want to change how we look at security, who we involve, you know, and who we work with on
1: that topic?
2: Welcome to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comiti.
1: I'm Ashley Stone.
2: And today's guest is Jennifer Heyman, who is vice president of social media and digital at wells fargo Uh, we had the great pleasure of hosting uh, jennifer Heyman when we were in san francisco earlier this year Um, obviously covid has upended all of that but we were lucky enough to reach her at her home in san francisco and conduct this interview over zoom
1: we love hearing her expertise she is so knowledgeable about social and digital and the approach that she takes to customer experience is smart, sound and comforting in these crazy times.
2: Yes, she is definitely a leader on this front and she is also a leader in the charge for marketers to consider the uh, security implications of social media and other technologies and play. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Jennifer Heyman. Welcome to the podcast, Jen Heyman, good to have you here.
0: Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here.
2: I'll I'll turn it over to Ashley to start.
1: Yeah, we are so excited to have you here. We actually had the pleasure of having you join our panel on making digital transformation more than a buzzword when we were in San Francisco at the end of February. So I wanted to start off with a really light, easy question. How do you define digital transformation?
0: can we not bring the panel to the podcast so that we can get the, uh, the richness of everyone's answers? Uh, it, was, it was so interesting. I feel like I came at this from a more clinical standpoint mm-hmm. as it relates to my personal job and, and my journey every day. So in my role at Wells Fargo, I really am a champion for the customer experience. So when I'm thinking about digital transformation, I'm truly thinking about that connection between customers and brands as to how the how the actions that they take, the mindset they begin to believe in, really evolves their own perception, belief, or confidence around digital and around digital connection with the brand. So I think transformation really takes its roots from both the customer side and the brand side in evolving, again, how the two interact and create more lasting impressions for the future. That's Mm -hmm. how I would define it.
2: Cool. And then in terms of transformation, social has truly been transformative for large financial enterprises. You know, I think it was at one point transformational, but now seems almost uh, required for, you know, the retail experience, um, everything from direct conversion like flash sale, coupon, etc. But, you know, financial services was slower to take that on. I think there's a a larger regulatory burden naturally, but also um, has traditionally maintained a more formal relationship with customers rather than sort of like there's a certain vulnerability that comes with being on social and opening yourself to that. So have you seen within, I guess, the vertical or within the industry of financial services, uh, something that pertains to transformation as it relates to social now, but where, where the industry might be headed? Where is Where are they trying to go to in terms of fostering that customer interaction?
0: So one of the things that I think marketers have talked about for so long is that whole idea of experience. What's really the experience that Mm -hmm. we're creating for the customer? And so what I think as you look at digital transformation and you look at social specifically, it was a lot of effort in the early years across all brands and certainly financial service brands to try and create different experiences. Um, I think where we sit today is it's just tougher to do that in financial when some of the baseline of that experience for customers is an in-person interaction and something you really couldn't replicate credibly or from a secure standpoint uh, in a digital experience. Interestingly is I think when you go through transformative events worldwide, which could be disaster, certainly could be uh, the current COVID-19 Crisis, you begin to take a look at those connections and those experiences that you have, and you may suddenly, as a customer or a, as a brand, place less value on the construct with which it took place in the past mm-hmm. versus the opportunity to, I need to get things done. So, where FinServe may have been held back as to trying to replicate as much of these personal experiences as they could through digital, they may now see, hey, We've overcome a big hurdle here, which is we've gotten maybe our population over the age of 65 to willingly do transactions online. How could we now provide a Zoom call-like experience to do consultations, especially if they don't feel like they want to travel to our offices? So I think just Overall, the environment we live in continues to set up how you enrich experiences through digital. And, and I think specifically like in social, you know, in our overall marketing connectivity, that's what we have to continue to um, herald with our customers in hopes of, again, deepening our relationship.
2: Yeah. And, and you just, you mentioned, um, security there in terms of being able to secure that interaction. When we were uh, in San Francisco, and I think it was after the panel, you and I were talking about the increasing importance of social media security at the time, that was the end of February at the time, in January, we had seen the large-scale Our Mind hack of Chorus, which is a large social media management platform used by, among others, Facebook, that had its Twitter account and its Instagram account hacked. And, you know, I had previously been talking to groups of marketers about security and they sort of looked at me dumbfounded when I asked if if somebody takes over your account who do you call (laughs) literally a room of them were silent um one of them thought it should be IT some of them you know a lot of the social is actually offshored into agencies so they don't actually have the passwords to these very important customer experience channels but so I was intrigued that you said this was of increasing importance. So I was curious to know, how have you seen that topic either grow in priority among your peers, or I just want to get the inside view of of how your peers may be talking about it?
0: Yep. It's a a great question. And it's so funny to think, you know, here we are on the heels of uh, the spring and full summer mindset. And yet, this event took place like firmly in winter and just feel like feels like it was ages ago mm-hmm. so with any, again, event or security breach, I think of this magnitude, the first thing brands and companies are going to do is investigate, you know, what happened to the infrastructure? So how was the security? How was the process? How are we set up? You know, it's a very sort of small, if you will, um, insular look at what broke. I think, again, you that, that was the guts of the initial conversation is everyone wanted to figure out what broke and are we set up appropriately? To defend against that in the future. What I think is happening now is you're asking a lot more questions. What happened with communication? And was that communication style, if as a brand we're paying a vendor to do something, was the communication style acceptable to me? Mm -hmm. Then we think of, you know, overall this breach impacted customers. So now you had a, a different stakeholder audience and you had to think, what would that mean to them? And that could have financial impact, if you will, you know, on a brand, on a company, on decisions made. So I think the initial questions were very focused on how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And how do we assess any risk that might've happened? But the go forward is on, did this occur in a business format or business continuity planning that like actually would have been acceptable to us, mm-hmm. and if not, do we want to change how we look at security, who we involve, you know, and who we work with on that topic and I think one of the biggest things uh, that I consistently saw in people talking publicly about a hack like this was you had email accounts of major brands uh, excuse me, you had social media accounts of major brands that were linked to an email address of somebody who maybe at one point in time had been your social media associate or, Mm -hmm. you know, better yet, your admin exec, and they were long since gone. So you were literally incapable of getting into an account because your hotshot millennial who ran it for you, you know, was no longer there. So... I think for a lot of brands, especially smaller brands, especially those working with agencies, just thinking of how you bring all your control features in-house will be probably the greatest learning um, and the takeaway from this event and how folks move forward.
2: Yeah. I think that's probably the legacy of social being so easily spun up Mm -hmm. back in the day that the accounts were set up. And we didn't know about security flaws back then, or it wasn't top of mind. And therefore, yes, there was no integration with like maybe an active directory. So when that employee leaves, the access gets shut off. It was really just a spreadsheet kept <laughs> on some shared folder. Like here are all of our passwords here. had access to it. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but uh, thank you for, for taking that on um, right here at the outset.
1: Sure. Yeah. And what's, what's really great about what you're highlighting is that we experience these events and are able to pivot quickly and, and take, take some learning so that what we're doing uh, won't have it, We won't have to experience the same thing, hopefully. And, and that sort of brings us to what we're experiencing in our day to day life. Uh, at the time of this recording, we're all still in quarantine and are dialing in from our home. So I'd love to know, how has your daily routine changed? So
0: great question. Probably not radically different from uh, the same of y'all's. I, I think the key thing is we're just we're working longer days and we're plugged in more, which gives us emotionally a little bit of a break uh, that we might need in the middle of the day in solving issues. It also gives us way more ammunition if you think about it in prioritizing issues, you know, and we don't have the distractions of commuting and childcare even though we may certainly have different things keeping us busy at home and different schedules to keep... I am somebody personally who uh, for the last few years has spent a good amount of time about a month in the summer living at my parents' house in suburban Chicago. And when I do that, I change my work schedule to something that looks like you know, starting early and ending late so that I catch all time zones and that, so that I'm still available to very actively manage my team that is based out of San Francisco and is used to me being on Pacific time. So I kind of feel like I already had this routine in place before quarantine. Mm -hmm. And I I think for a number of my employees, I manage a global team. We operate different shifts, different days of the week. We're pretty close to 24-7. And we came together very quickly to say, what do we want to do? And how are we going to do it to best support our customers? So the first week, my team of eight was shrunk to my team of five. And we said, okay. Okay. We have five people and we have seven days a week. How are we gonna do this? And then by the second week, when my um, additional three folks could join us from our global location, same question. What hours do you guys want to work? How is this going to fit the best into your schedule? So I, I think some amount of flexibility is necessary, but at the end of the day, I think it's really just giving yourself time to step away from what can be very intense work, take an emotional break. You know, I often think of like, Our day is a mix of leisure, work, and education, all in a very nonlinear fashion. So sometimes during the day, I just want to read about what's happening in the economic markets. You know, that's important. And I think you've got to take that break. And similarly, if you need to get exercise, everyone's doing that. So I think quarantine's here to stay for a little while. Um, So hopefully, we can figure out that that best approach to really getting... uh, measurable and meaningful work done in the midst of all the craziness
2: yeah and i think that's maybe those boundaries are what's hard it's more difficult to mentally compartmentalize like this is my workout time because i'm not physically in a gym i'm like in the other room from where i'm also working or you know the kids are running around upstairs or you know you've all the lines have been blurred <laughs> You're just like in one space right that can that can get um a little bit mentally taxing definitely um, and i i know for a handful of us who had, had uh you know vacation plans we are now no longer <laughs> vacationing so you've actually if you stand back you are now going you're working more intensely and uh longer without a break which i think is right. going to start to take a toll pretty soon um could you let's step back a little bit and it's interesting to take hold of the fact that social media as a, you know, management level title is now the norm, but it's important to remember that it wasn't always that way. So curious to understand anyone who's working professionally in social media, how they got there. So if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you got to Wells Fargo from the Midwest, that'd be, that'd be good to hear.
0: I love telling stories, so this will be fun. I moved to the Bay Area After finishing my MBA in Chicago, with an interest in working in financial services, but in exploring different functional strengths that I had versus following, say, a very specific passion for a particular job or job title, Uh, I gained experience through strategy, through financial analysis. I had the opportunity to work overseas, and ultimately, it led me to a field liaison role for a major financial service brand in which I helped to translate marketing materials to readiness talking points that bankers could use in working with customers. So mm. end customer focus and this translation of materials. And in doing that, took a career stop along the way working in education technology and gaining much more close experience working directly with customers. Similarly, worked at an ad agency on some key problems uh, as the U.S. went through kind of the first financial crisis back in 2008 and ultimately landed at Wells Fargo with an opportunity to help run a campaign and a campaign in social media. And my skills that were of interest were really the fact that I had launched campaigns before and that I understood, again, how to reach the customer and how to plan for it. Because I think that was critically important as well. Wells was one of the earliest brands to have gotten into social media Mm -hmm. and to have moved from, we're going to post job openings to we're really going to talk about banking. So my tenure on the team going on uh, just past eight years, actually. Um, you know, and I'll tell you a lot of people, one of the first questions they ask me is why should I follow my bank or any bank in social media? And we always have a story if you're our customer, cause it's a great way to get customer updates and a great, it's a great way to connect with the brand. Um, but I think a lot of brands are using platforms today to creatively really connect with, topics of interest to anyone as you go through life stages and essentially as you challenge yourself as you age with maybe needing more sophisticated banking products. So Wells tries to tell that story in a really lighthearted manner. It's really exciting to be at the forefront of that. And again, I think the key is they really keep the customer first in mind, something that's been a continuous tenet throughout my journey.
2: Cool. That's an interesting story.
1: That's beautiful. I love love the ability to tell stories on social media because that's how people are engaging with content. And you are also a board member of socialmedia.org. For the benefit of our listeners, can you describe the organization's mission?
0: Certainly. Socialmedia.org, I would say, is pretty similar to a trade organization in which they're trying to tap into the best minds through a paid structure of brands and individuals to talk about a specific uh, functional area, again, that is growing the way in which we connect with customers. So socialmedia.org includes many of the top sort of Fortune 100, uh, 500,000 international brands and provides a collaborative vehicle for conversation. All conversation is kept confidential, specific to what the brands have said. So it's an interesting challenge as well in identifying how you might source information from a peer who knows a lot about you and with whom you want to be careful about how much you give up mm-hmm. regarding your own personal situation or, or your company's situation, if you will. Uh, so it's a, mm-hmm. it's a great organization uh, through which we have a structure to share share in person and digitally on key topics to advance social media and our reach of customers.
2: Yeah, I think it's, um, as you know, we had talked with uh, Mark Sternberg of brand innovators. And similarly, I think that peer to peer uh, information sharing is, is very valuable and um, certainly something I had not seen before we attended our first uh, summit, which was to just see, open competitors essentially discussing uh, pitfalls, strategies, challenges, which was also very refreshing. I I sort of was dumbfounded at one point because I think um, Hilton and Marriott were on the same panel and was like, I can't Mm -hmm. believe you're saying this in front of one another. There are people here taking notes, but, you know, all to the good. It's sort of the rising tide lifts all boats. Correct. Um, so returning back to this idea of, uh, security, which you highlighted, um, from a business operations perspective, um, how do you, you and your team from the customer experience side, think about security either on social or or other digital channels? Um, and the follow-up question will be how has that mindset changed with this shift to remote work? I, you know, I'm sure that offers some infrastructure challenges, but first interested in the security aspect from your side and then how that has adapted.
0: I think there are three things I think about when we're talking about security and sort of how myself, how I approach managing my team here. So, There's personal security. Am I set up physically in a way to ensure that I'm abiding by the operational structure that is going to provide safety? And safety is protection, of course, of my brand as well as maybe my personal credentials. So I'm always curious about that. But I want to think about it as well how this impacts my team. My team works in very different structures uh, in some cases than I do, physical workspaces. And then we can't ignore the fact that we are a team leading global social conversation for Wells Fargo. So we're reading about customers and, and their security issues every single day. So we try to think, personal, but then on behalf of the brand, and then at the end of the day, much more importantly, on behalf of our customers. Uh, I think the key that we set up are, goes back to the way I answered the question earlier about the KOROS outage, which is, you've got to set up the right infrastructure in place and mm-hmm. you have to review it. You know, this, The beauty of social conversation is it's not one and done, it's one and keep doing every minute of the day, because social conversation changes and evolves. So, you have to take the same approach, I think, to security and your governance and Thankfully, we've committed to that. We have a big team on behalf of Wells Fargo, uh, for which we've actually got two people in charge of governance across everything we do. So they have a stated process they've managed to it. It helps me ensure that at least for those three initial elements, we are all set up to be doing the best that we can. And if we identify a security breach, we know exactly how to report it, how to troubleshoot it in real time. What's changed, I think, to working remotely is we had to set up a few members of my global team for the first time ever to work from home. So that was really interesting Mm -hmm. because one of the conversations I had to go through with them was, here's how you used to do your job when you sat in an office. Here's how now you're doing your job. When you sit at home, you don't have two monitors. You don't have, you know, the telephone that you can be uh, dialing into the U S without a problem. Um, You may be using your personal phone to do zoom calls or Facebook messenger because that's the only way we can get in touch. So, I had to really talk to them about security. And then I had to go through the same exercise with my entire team, like think about the impact of the customer too, because now all of a sudden, you know, the customer may, be faced with a very different digital connection uh, than they were used to previously. And again, for a population that walked into a branch and deposited a check and can't do that now, they're going to ask questions about security that might not mean something to us, but we really have to step into their shoes, understand their context. So I think that's the biggest thing that shifted for us is going beyond what had been our emotional construct around security, because, like, you know, uh, that bubble has burst in a very different way from what customers are experiencing today.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think um, it, it just raises the point that while a lot of businesses were working on these continuity plans, that at the core, and we had uh, just spoken with somebody else about this, underlying the technology is making sure the human element is clear, both from a work Culture standpoint, but also just understanding like it's not just as easy as like flip a switch. Everyone use Zoom. Like there's kind of a new way to communicate. Um, there are new pressures. Like you can't stand up and move around as if you were in a conference room and it was just a you know shouting into a polycom. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's good to see that there was still a very uh, strong focus on the on the human process because ultimately technology is just. Either an enhancement or an impediment of those processes. Right. Um, cool. Well, I'll turn it over to Ashley for the next question. I'm I'm taking notes here because I I have another one to, uh, another question in mind.
1: So we we were talking about communication channels like Zoom um, or maybe Messenger to talk on video, and I think we're all getting creative, whether it's with our coworkers or for personal connection on using video calls with our social distancing. Do you have any favorite video conferencing stories to share? I do, I have one. Uh,
0: this might age me a little bit, but in light of the fact that, you know, we're nearing summer, uh, we should find ways to celebrate. Summer is a great time of change for us when we embrace the outside, when we embrace the outdoors. So many years ago... Having grown up in Chicago, I had the, the opportunity to attend a summer camp in northern Wisconsin. It was a girls-only summer camp, I think about 400 campers. And, you know, we've had the benefit of social media to connect us, and we've had reunions. But one of the things that's been so unique about um, summer camp for me, again, what the, the secret sauce was that we used to love doing campfires and like singing songs and we published songbooks. So we actually had a summer camp songbook reunion for campers from the 70s and 80s only for this camp. And we had <laughs> about 90 people join on a Saturday afternoon a couple wow. of weeks ago. Yeah and and we just you know we said this is 2 hours you can come when you want you can leave when you want take what you get out of it don't worry about the rest we organized in advance like what songs we wanted to sing we shared the songbook and it was just it was unbelievable the personal stories and the connections you know that that from this and just the meaning of like oh my god these people were you know my idols as a kid and everyone kept saying the same thing. I idolized so many of you. I can't believe you're all on this call together. And there were funny (laughs) stories that came up um, and it was really just amazing. But I'll, I'll close with like, I think what my friends would say the most unique contribution that I made to the group and everyone introduced themselves or made some contribution is I had a very close friend in childhood who, opted not to send her own daughter to this camp and hasn't really stayed in touch. And I just invited her along for the ride, just sort of hoping that she would join. And she joined, and she didn't let me know that she would join <laughs> until she spoke up and said something. And, and I remarked with, oh my God, you're on this call. And all my girlfriends were like you idolized her. I said, well, she was such the center point of that experience for me. So I think those are the kinds of things we remember. That's what we'll take away from this. You know, I've seen two, so many great examples of the drive-by birthday parties. Mm. And as someone whose birthday is rapidly approaching and I will be celebrating in quarantine, like I would love nothing more for 15 of my friends to drive down (laughs) the street in san francisco you know honking away that it's my birthday next <laughs> friday so,
2: <laughs> yes we, we uh we we, cel- we celebrate yeah we recently celebrated a zoom birthday uh you know with the, the kids screaming happy birthday and singing it through and yeah in some ways it's uh very much the benefit that we have these technologies now that we could do this you know it would be much harder yes. um uh, maybe in the mid-90s, just for bandwidth-wise, for sure. You just have to get on right. the phone. But so for 90, so this is by far the most entertaining video conference story we've heard. Um, huh? For these for these 90 people, was this like a Zoom call? So you had like the mega Brady Bunch tile effect? Yes. Wow. That is yes. impressive.
0: And, the, and, and they like pre-planned the moderation and facilitation. Key, so these critical, two, absolutely yes. critical. Yes. These these two women a year younger than me, like planned it entirely. They had a whole, you know, approach, like, okay, if there are women on the call, I think there were a couple of women who started out maybe as campers in the very late 60s. So they introduced themselves first and they had, they just they it was really well organized. It I'm didn't good. get out of control. We had Five different people lead songs, which was pretty
2: amazing.
0: And it was like, okay, Suzanne's leading this one. We're muting everyone else. Suzanne, you know, you've got this. And um, yes, it, that's
2: it, that is the the muting coordination would be key at that level because ninety open mics on the the same time with dogs and kids and cars and whatever going on in the background would be uh, it'd be a, a little bit much. But that's yeah. that is uh, that's probably. Better than most companies are able to pull off at this point in terms of black belt Zoom skills. So good on them. Yeah, um, that was exciting. That's great. Um, oh, so I wanted to come back to my question again. I'll ask it in in, in two parts. My looking forward to kind of like a post COVID world because a lot of our customers are now. They're sort of out of panic in Virginia, at least, I think in San Francisco very much so. We're in the sort of weeks eight and 10 of this. Um, we're, we're past the immediate business continuity concern and very much at what does a Q4 look like? Um, I think some of our customers are very critically looking at these new technologies as a competitive advantage. You know, if I, if I have uh, collaboration tools in place, does that make my team more productive than my rivals, et cetera. Um, so to that end, uh, can you speak to how Wells evaluates like new channels? Like how do you decide when to, either you need a dedicated Twitter handle for X, Y, and Z, or is there a population you're trying to reach on a different channel? I ask because we have some uh, regulated businesses that have, for example, a lot of investors in China, or they have a lot of dealings with Hong Kong. So, They may be small investment firms by, you know, Wells Fargo standards, but they are actually looking to use WeChat because it's like a very business critical concern. We have others who have a lot of customers in Latin America. So WhatsApp is a concern. I was just curious as to how, what is the process in vetting that channel readiness?
0: Hopefully... Most big brands, like Wells Fargo, already had a vetting process in place you know long before covid uh, I think if anything the uncertainty of the environment that we 're facing right now lends credibility if we can prove that we can securely connect with people through other channels. And I Mm -hmm. think without question, anyone actively publishing in social right now can state that social conversation has gone through the roof. So significant growth rates. I mean, brands are seeing as much as 200%, Two hundred percent, if not more, increase in overall mentions in social, and then you know rates up to easily one hundred percent greater in how many replies you 're doing with the same resources so uh, I I hope that companies like ours continue to move opportunities forward based on demonstrated examples of customer success and connection um, through the coronavirus. I think the key thing I'm seeing as well is not so much growth in specialized branding, um, but greater commitment to streams of conversation published through existing channels. I know Mm -hmm. it's something we've been doing a lot more of. um, Examples like showcasing a lot more of our internal emails on LinkedIn, not something we would previously have done before as a thought leadership tool from our C-suite but something that we think is is working. And it's not just working for us, it's working for other brands. I think additionally, I saw some, I just saw an announcement this morning that one of the large social media management tools has now announced it's integrating TikTok. So mm. that will open the door for brands that are customers of that tool to now be able to see TikTok conversations in a standardized uh, way in which they could compare against other performance metrics. So is that going to increase the number of brands using TikTok very possibly. I think we've already seen a lot of people migrate to TikTok for pure content during coronavirus. because That's been such an effective way, you know, to communicate with that younger audience. And and I think with messaging platforms too, I mean, I think the the Facebooks um, of the world, you know, specific to Messenger for a second, have really benefited from understanding um, and learning the metrics off of all the security and the safety they've put around good content. And in fact, I've read some things that I didn't look into deeply that Facebook alone had invested significant resources in ensuring that all their coronavirus content was accurate, was real news, et cetera. So, all of those steps benefit security put into a platform like WhatsApp to facilitate future conversation. So the challenge really is for the brands to come forward to say, hey, we operated in this different way successfully. Let's make sure we now morph that into the tools that our customers are telling us and demonstrating to us they want to use. So that would be the best outcome.
2: Okay. And that that does that goes... Um part of the way in answering my last question here, which is, um, whether it's socialmedia.org, dot um, your peers at brand innovators or, or, or just in financial services, what advice would you give to them during this time to, to digital marketing professionals to, you know, it can be everything from comfort advice to, to professional advice.
0: So I I think it's kind of a mix of both. I think it's, you really have to put your customer first with Mm. everything that you do right now. You really have to think about them. What, What are they saying? What are they doing? What is their context? Because remember, you might push out a message that you think will land in a certain way, whereas your customer might interpret it and or prioritize that, if you will, into their overall emotional construct very differently. So I think it's really important to take that into account. I think it's okay as well to say... We're going to be slower. We're going to say less. We're going to be okay with being more reactive versus Mm -hmm. more proactive. I think this is one of the key questions brands struggle with all the time is how much should I be saying? And, you know, is silence really a bad thing right now? Do I need some press better than no press? So I think you have to think about your customer and, and weave those two together and make sure you have the arm able to be as reactive as possible when the customer does raise their hand.
2: I think that's a good point. We saw a lot in those first heady days of March in terms of brands trying to have something to say about coronavirus, which was, I would say, 90% of the time, not what anyone wanted to hear. Right. Um, So that's a a good point about uh, listening rather than speaking.
0: Right. We have to move from that ubiquitous, you know, we're here to help message to how are we going to get you forward? How are we going to be there when you take your first steps? Or, you know, again, as towns and communities continue to evolve that. So it is one of the interesting challenges for a bank, too, because I think we've seen so much conversation specific to close your branches. They're not safe places with respect to the transmission of the Mm -hmm. virus to now open your branches, because we need to get back to business as usual. So a real dichotomy in how people think, and I believe our thoughtfulness and evaluation from an operational standpoint allowed us to decide, you know, here's where we are going to keep our branches open. Here's where we're going to use a drive-through structure. Here's where we're going to rely on ATM and mobile banking. So I feel like we've been very thoughtful as to run the gamut of ideas that we believe have some staying power. Uh, But certainly we, we are working to open up more branches when we feel like that is safe within our footprint. Cool.
2: Well, I want to thank you very much for the time. I know you're very busy and working across multiple time zones. Um, So yes, thank you very much for the conversation.
0: Thank you so much, George and Ashley. It was really great to connect with you guys and I hope you stay safe. And I look forward to doing this sometime in the future. Great.
1: Thanks for joining. Thanks you guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye now. Bye. Bye.
2: And that does it for another episode of The Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. As always, we are grateful to Abby Bruce for sound design and production, Matthias Cefaletti for our theme music, and to our guests for lending their precious time and their expertise and insights. Um, I just want to say during this challenging time that we are grateful also to the first responders and the men and women in the hospitals on the front line. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong, y'all. We'll be back. We will return with another episode soon. But until then, this is The Zero Hour, signing off.